Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I'm your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Show notes plus photos or recommended reading transcripts can be found on each associated episode's webpage. Simply go to londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy what we do, then please rate and review. It warms the cockles of my heart to read your appreciation of this labour of love. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Like many other places in London, Covent Garden has evolved over the years. It started from humble beginnings as a convent garden for Westminster Abbey. It has moved through many guises over the centuries, from a home to the aristocracy and the main centre of theatrical life in London, it developed into the largest produce market in the world. The rapid expansion of the market altered the character of the area. Along with a bustling commercial market, two theatres, the first Theatre Royal on Drury Lane and the Royal Opera on Bow Street were built. Each theatre had letters patent granted by Charles II, allowing them to be the only London theatres able to perform spoken drama. This made Covent Garden London's theatrical centre, attracting droves of theatre-goers who thronged the streets of Drury Lane and Bow Street and brought in their wake a flourishing trade in prostitution. The residing nobility living at a time where a respectable address was everything, moved further to London's west. And it is here where we begin today's episode. Joining me in the studio today is Barbara Wright. She's a City of Westminster tour guide and an amateur musician. And she has been doing a brand new walk for us called Classical Composers in the West End. And I went on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, being a music fan myself, as I'm sure you all know by now. And uh, it was absolutely riveting. And one of the key people that Barbara talks about is Thomas Arne. And I wanted to know more about him and his London life, and I'm sure you do too. So uh, Barbara is with us today. Hello, Barbara. Hello, Hazel. Thomas Arne is a name that people might not know, but they certainly would know some of his music, wouldn't they? Oh, yes, they would. Uh, You'd you'd, uh, never guess that he wrote the national anthem and he wrote a lot of songs that are actually in an English songbook, which if ever you went to a school that had a songbook, it probably had a few of his songs in. He also wrote God Save the Queen. So there you go. So very interesting man, born in Covent Garden. Covent Garden now, when people think about it, they think of maybe the the boutique shops and uh, maybe the opera house, which, of course, we touched in episode 82 of Ballet in London. But Thomas Arne, his, most of his life, he's actually spent in and around Covent Garden, isn't he? Yes, he did. And that, to me, is one of the most fascinating things about Covent Garden. It used to be more of a place for ordinary people to live. 
the ordinary people who didn't earn a lot of money, didn't have a lot of money, lived in Covent Garden, and particularly artistic types and particularly musical types, even composers. There were quite a few composers and musicians in the 18th century living in Covent Garden. And Thomas Arne was born at 31 King Street, right bang between Covent Garden Piazza and Leicester Square. Can you imagine that? That's amazing. And his parents were not well off. They were upholsterers. And that was not a rich family. He was born there. Because they weren't that well off, and this is quite common, his parents, the last thing that they would want him to do is go into anything artistic, because anything artistic meant an insecure life, okay? So his parents wanted him to become a solicitor, and he was articled to be a solicitor, but in secret, he was learning the spinet, which is a kind of harpsichord. And he used to put his handkerchief over it at night so that he could actually practice when the family were asleep. I was thinking about the practicalities of this because um, at school we used to put newspaper between <laughs> the, the hammers and the strings in order to, to deaden the sounds a little bit. Mm. And uh, I'm kind of thinking when we're putting a handkerchief over, maybe he's doing that, a bit like how you put um, muffles on a bell yes. to uh, minimise the, the, the sound. Yeah. And so he is up at night. What, is he a teenager by now, is he? Is this what he's doing it? He was a teenager by this time. And uh, the thing was, also, what he did was that uh, he was so keen on the opera and the theatre that he dressed up as what was called a liveryman, a sort of smart servant, to go to the theatre and opera. And it was there that he met a man called Michael Vesting, who was also a local composer. He was also a violinist. And he played at the, it would have been then the Queen's Theatre Haymarket, played the violin there. He took um, Thomas Arne under his wing and um, taught him the violin and also showed him around, gave him contacts. So that was absolutely critical and the thing about Thomas Arne is that, A, he was living in this environment which was very packed with people. All day and night there were people. They lived close together, cheek by jowl. That's how it was. Lots of artists, musicians, etc. Lots of visitors. So you couldn't not bump into people. This was the point. Because of that, you bumped into people like yourself who happened to be there because there were so many theatres in that area or musical places. So there was Drury Lane Theatre, there was Covent Garden Opera, and I've obviously mentioned the Haymarket, but also in the 17th and 18th century were growing up lots of uh, places to listen to music, which was not in a church, so pubs particularly. Uh, there was a place down on the Strand where you could go to listen to music in a pub, and that was because there was nowhere else to go um, to start with, with secular music. 
what's an exciting time to live as a teenager yeah you're you're in a place where the arts is alive literally on your doorstep yeah. you're being inspired yeah. by people that you are going to be bumping into you're dressing up as a liveryman to to go and see these performances and then you are muffling a spinet and playing it in your bedroom at night when your parents sleep um, yeah. i mean <laughs> i mean he he, he was really uh, following something from the heart wasn't it yes yes and the interesting thing about it particularly was that whereas today if you um you were of modest means like that uh you wouldn't be living you wouldn't be able to live in somewhere like Covent Garden and be near all that culture uh you'd been living out in the suburbs where, where only if you got the money to get on the tube and come into London would you experience that buzz which you get in most capital cities somewhere, but it was particularly like that in the 18th century. So when I walk round Covent Garden and I finish my classical composer's walk at Thomas Arne's home at 31 King Street, I, I often feel I'd like to spend more time there to sort of try to think back to the 18th century of what it would have been like to literally live there um, as a modest individual who didn't have a lot of money, and that's how it was. You said his dad was uh, an upholsterer, yeah, and, and they wanted him to become a solicitor, and that's something parents even say now, isn't it? You know, yeah. when yeah. you grow up, you can be anything you want to be, yeah. as long as it's a doctor, a solicitor, or a dentist. They're the yes. three options. Was he was he training to be a solicitor, um, and then doing this on the sly? What what happened? He did three um, years of it as an article clerk, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, apparently what happened was uh, was that he his father came upon him at some musical event, soiree or something like that. I don't know whether he was playing music or just watching. So he sort of caught in the act, as it were, and eventually the parents gave way and, and let him pursue his musical career. And again, that was Michael Vesting, with a V, who was encouraging him um, to... He had a mentor, basically, uh, through Michael. And, you know, if he hadn't been round the corner from him, because Michael lived in in Covent Garden as well, you know, he, it would never have happened. And actually, the person this who reported this was uh, Francis Burney, and he was also a composer, and he lived in Covent Garden as well. He was the uh, father of Fanny Burney, who was perhaps a little bit more well-known. But through, you know, this musical connection, I think you can actually get a feel for the the, the sort of artistic feel, as it were, for of Covent Garden at that time, because there were so many composers in that area and, and people who were musicians, and they just live around the corner from their work which, of course, it's so difficult to do these days unless you're very well off in, in somewhere like a big city. So it must have been amazing, an amazing place. And also, um, it was just about the time that I suppose you call the middle classes or the and the aristocracy. Well, the aristocracy always had money, but the middle classes were starting to have a bit of money. And you'd got things like Apart from these uh, pubs where you could go to uh, listen to music, you'd also got, it's further away, but somewhere like the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, where you would go to listen to music. And Thomas Arne uh, composed music 
for places like that. And that would have, again, been a bit of a melting pot. You know, it's like, you know people in London and then you go to Ascot. And when you go to Ascot, you bump into everybody again. And I'm sure <laughs> the Vauxhall Club Pleasure Gardens would have been like that. If you've seen Poldark, they, they have a few scenes at uh, the, the Pleasure Gardens, but it's got to have been even more fun than that. I mean, oh, you know, hedges which had little bits cut out so they'd have um, um, artwork in the hedges so you can see like an outdoor uh, gallery and, and yes. uh, also well, I suppose dark corners to do uh, dark deeds and yes. live music on the bandstand you know we have that now at di- disco and you go to the DJ and ask for your favourite tune don't you and they yes. were doing exactly the same thing back then but with the live orchestra how amazing is that? It's a pity we can't recreate it maybe in festivals we have yes yeah maybe and of course it wasn't just Vauxhall it was Ranley Marlebone and of course round Islington as well there were so many pleasure gardens um and music yes. was this is where the importance of of music and accessibility to music was was coming on now it wasn't just for those who could afford music within their own private home for their their guests this yeah. is the first time I suppose we call it popular music <laughs> Yes, yes, no, it's a fact, it's a great time. And then I've, I've got um, a bit of a funny example of this thing about being in close proximity, um, which was apparently, um, I discovered that uh, there was this thing called the Battle of the Romeos, which was two versions of Romeo and Juliet, which were held, uh-huh. one at Covent and the other at Drury Lane. And Thomas Arne wrote a dirge for the one at Covent Garden, William Boyce, another composer born in Covent Garden, wrote the uh, the, the music to the rival one. He had to, he was told to one weekend he had to write it sort of by Monday or something, and um, so he wrote it. And as a re- these two productions were going on at the same time, um, and as a result of Boyce writing his, he managed to get a bigger audience at the Drury Lane Theatre. So. It was a bit of a febrile, if that's the right expression, um, atmosphere um, with uh, not just um, getting on, but also a bit of competition there. Um, all round, all people living together round the corner from each other, not always getting on. Fantastic. <laughs> Battle of the Romeos. <laughs> yes. That was 1750 when that war broke out. Wow. <laughs> so, so to put it into perspective for everybody else, this is the same time as uh, Handel's about. We've talked about Handel in previous episodes. And, of course, yeah. we have Hogarth as well, who would have been very yes. um, active in the area as well. Yes. And so uh, you mentioned about him spending much of his life in London. I mean, he was all over the place, wasn't he? So we talked about where he lived on King Street. Uh, we've yeah. also talked about the, the Haymarket Theatre, um, where yeah. he performed at, um, and also Drury Lane as well. A few years uh, after that, and you mentioned the Pleasure Gardens. He's getting about a bit. Covent Garden Theatre. What about other places? He wrote pieces for a festival at Stratford. This is Stratford upon Avon or Stratford at London. Stratford upon Avon. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, he wrote for a festival. I think When the Bee Sucks was written for that, and there was something called Soft Flowing Avon, and the Avon flows through Stratford-on-Avon. And I'm not sure uh, whether this was also produced for the Shakespeare, but he wrote another famous song 
A Hunting We Will Go, which would definitely be in, in an English song book. And another one less well known, Blow, Blow, Thou Winter Winds. And his style was very, as they say, light and airy. And he had a great sense of melody. And he copied a lot of sort of Irish, Scottish and also Italian styles in in musical songs which was which was lovely he was a bit of an outlier really because he wasn't a member of the church of england he was actually catholic so he was always a bit on the outside of the establishment because if you were a member of the catholic church in those days you wouldn't have been able to secure a formal position say for example as cathedral organist um so that's possibly why he veered towards the theatre. Um, however, funnily enough, he was eventually, now I think of it, buried uh, in St Paul's Church in Covent Garden, which I'm sure is Church of England. He'd never secured a position, and in those days um, you had to be in the Church of England if you were going to get anywhere in music. So uh, that would have been difficult for him but he made a very good career in the theatre and he is considered to be the most foremost theatrical composer of the of the 18th century if not ever but a lot of his music was burnt and has disappeared probably because many of the theatres burnt down the the main wood for example uh, Covent Garden Theatre where he performed quite a lot um his work uh he uh that burnt down twice and so he would have lost music there um so uh yes yeah, so that was that was uh that was his that was his his life um mainly I, it was actually mainly round covent garden that he spent his time in the theatres round there and the, the pubs in, in the area I think it's um, what you're saying about him having um, an ability to write a good tune. I mean, being a a singer myself, I've sang Where the Bee Sucks and I've got it in my head now. And, you know, Hunting Will Go. They are good tunes, aren't they? I mean, you and also, you know, Rule Britannia, you do want to give a good sing song. I mean, I must admit, when I'm listening to uh, some nouveau music now, I'm like, I'm waiting for the tune. But you certainly get a feeling that it was a very lively period for for music and in fact it's an 18th it's an 18th century music society if anybody wants to look it up um you can look up all these 18th century composers and there's an awful lot of them some of which you might never have heard but you might know that you might know the music even if you don't you've never heard their names so that's worth looking up there was something special about the placement of covent garden as well the thing was, was that it was placed between uh, the city and Westminster, the seat of power. But when Inigo Jones built Covent Garden Piazza in the 1600s, a lot of aristocrats moved in. It was designed for aristocrats, but it was never quite finished. And then they put the market in. So it was a bit of a hotpot. And then you had the uh, plague um and 1665, and then the Great Fire of London, 1666. And this helped make the aristocrats quite fearful, and they started to look to move west. And they started to move away for Covent Garden, which allowed rooms for, for, the, for the poorer um, artistic types to move into. 
Uh, and uh, so that's that's what created a bit a few vacancies, as it were, as, as the aristocrats move west towards uh, first Leicester Square, then St James and Mayfair later on. And so that's what created this 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 hub really. And people came from all over the country uh, to actually live there. Amazing, really, and not just the arts, but also for the the, the coffee houses as well. We think of uh, you know Samuel Johnson and yes. yeah exactly so a, a melting pot of all these people these thinkers yeah um, coming together um, yeah. and and finding um, a, a a practical outlet really yes yes I mean that's what makes the what I think what makes a big city so f- so amazing there is that creative. Buzz. I mean, they said that during COVID that, you know, the uh, IT sector really suffered. Um, they, I mean, that's why um, you get them, you know, saying everyone has to be near each other to, to bounce ideas off each other. Although I know now you've got working from home, but that's one of the problems with working from home is that you don't, but, you know, you don't get that creative buzz that you get if you're, if you're, you know, right, right beside each other. Um, but I was just going to mention, um, just thinking about giving you an idea of the pov- not poverty, but the insecurity of, say, his parents a bit mm-hmm. more, because I don't, I think that's something that it might be worth emphasising and what it was like, because there was no uh, state provision in those days. Um, I said his father was an upholsterer, and his, but his grandfather. Was, we had to go into the Marshall Sea Debtors Prison because he was in 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 huge debt. So they sort of went from that to his father managing to make enough money to send him to Eton. Mm. So although they were they were sort of insecure middle classes, one minute you know they'd got the grandfather was in a debtors prison, and the next minute he managed to earn some money. But during his lifetime, his father also. Um, was reduced to quite a lot of poverty. So I don't really, you know, know how he managed to end up sending to Eton, but they struggled to do that. It was that narrative, you know, of the family who uh, were determined that he was going to get on. Marshall C. Deathless Prison to Eton is quite a, a, a jump, isn't it? But that was all within sort of two or three generations. Yeah, amazing. Especially to think of that, I mean, that on King Street, that's a big house for them to rent, wasn't it? Yeah, but it would be interesting to find out a bit more about the actual finances of the family. But, you know, anyway, that's 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 apparently the, the sort of the gap between it. March will see debtors prison up to eat and quite a... Quite a job. So, so for those who might recognise the name Marshalsea Prison, it's also where Charles Dickens's father um, and brother and younger siblings uh, went, and you can still see part of the wall there. But I'm just thinking, as a teenage Thomas Arne, you've been sent to Eton in the 1720s. Mm-hmm. You've been told to become a man of law, and all you want to do is make music. And you know that your grandfather yeah. had been in debtor's prison. There's a lot of pressure on your shoulders to become someone who inherently you're, you're not. Yes, yes. It, uh, William Boyce and Arne, you know, they had rivalry that went beyond that Battle of the Romeos. So why that was, but it might make you super sensitive and amb- uh, ambitious and determined that you were going to make it, even if it was in a different um profession 
I think that's quite common. I think Shakespeare was like that a bit, uh, you know, absolutely determined to get on because you'd been slighted quite a lot earlier on. Link with, like, you know, Shakespeare, he wanted to make money there and then. He wasn't thinking about his name living on in 500 years' time. Um, is that the same for Arne? Did he, did he make it financially? Uh, he, he married um, a lady who was a soprano singer. He also taught his sister to sing. Then he fell out with his wife and then got together again before he died. Um, and his son, they had a son and the son became a composer. So I think that if his son became a composer, they must have had enough money to keep in the music tradition so um, I don't think he ever became I, – I don't, I don't get the feeling he ever became really rich, um, but I think that he was sort of reasonably uh, comfortable, I would imagine, um, from his music, but he probably had to be careful with money. They kept, they kept themselves together – you know, they, they mixed more or less just with each other. Not some, I mean, they did a bit with the artists. Vic Gartrell, uh, I will quote from him, says, they were thought of as craftsmen of the middling kind and earned little. It would be an interesting comparison to have a look at, you know, how much money everybody actually had. Very different time now where you're not relying on, on patrons with that private music. You're now... You've got to be a populist. You've got to write for the, the, the masses in order to, to get the money, haven't you? A couple of pence from each person all adds up in the end. But there was this slow, gradual um, development of music as an actual profession because, I mean, but it, it took till the um, uh, 18, 18, 1820s and then the 1880s, you've got the Royal Academy of Music and the Royal College of Music were developed. So it was into the 1800s before you actually had a formal place to go and learn um, music as opposed to learning it from an actual patron. Um, apparently, um, uh, Francis Burney had three years learning off Thomas Arn. Mm. So that's the way you presumably did it. And then Thomas Arn learned off vesting mm. so that's the way you were actually um learning music then and in terms of the number of musicians and sort of my theory that they were starting to professionalize there was this thing called the universal directory which might be a bit like kelly's directory which i think has disappeared but when i was first at work we used kelly's directory um, in my job and it was bright red I remember but anyway the 1763 Universal Directory listed 95 masters and professors of music across London 1763 and it said many of them actually lived in Covent Garden so mm -hmm. that to me is an indication you were starting to get people who actually taught music as a living and clearly Thomas Arne was teaching music and getting paid for it as well as composing music for the theatres and the pleasure gardens yeah. and presumably playing as well although you hear more of his composing um, for example he produced some songs for a later version of the beggar's opera Rich's, John Rich's um, 
Beggar's Opera, which was first um, produced in 1728. I think it's about 1750. Thomas Arne, his songs were in another Covent Garden version later on. So they were constantly revising and improving um, operas, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he wrote Italian opera himself. He's got one called, um, Ros- I think it's called Rosamond. And he, that was his first one. But, you know, a lot of them have, dis- you know, dis- when I say disappeared, we don't hear of them, but we do hear of um, God Save the Queen yeah. uh, and a few of these um, uh, lovely songs which have survived yeah. uh, into, into our heritage as, as I think quintessentially English, actually. I'm just thinking, what a wonderful work, because you're talking about Charles Burney. So if you think of uh, Evelina um, being written by Fanny Burney and Charles being a student of Arne, yeah. and he, you know, he's he's one of the first musical historians I learnt about. Yes. And then when you throw into the melting pot, obviously, Susanna, Arne's sister, yes. um, she, was, she was a big favourite, um, including Handel. Handel absolutely loves Susanna. Anna, and she got on really well with David Garrick, who also lived in Covent Garden. Wow. And she was on the, the stage with, with, with for him at Drury Lane and that. So it's it, they're, they're all moving around in a very small circle. Yeah. Um, and on Sunday nights, there were musical soirees at Susanna's house. And I'm not quite sure if she's actually living with her brother, Thomas, because it's a big house there, isn't it? Yes. Um, and all having a, a good old sing song on a Sunday night. Yes. Um, and making their own fantastic uh, music. Yes. Well, they also had these things called, um, have you heard of glee clubs? Yes. An early drinking club where you would sing songs. Yeah. And apparently there were a lot of those around Covent Garden. So that would have been, uh, yeah. So, yeah, Sunday night seems to be music night, doesn't it? In fact, isn't there a, there used to be a, I think there used to be a programme on the radio called, there was, Sunday Night is Music Night, I remember. Really? Yeah, there was. And actually, thinking about it, my grandfather, who was a very good violinist, they used to apparently get round the piano on a Sunday. It was Sunday night. So mm-hmm. we got round and, you know, because people had instruments, um, even relatively modestly well-off people might have the odd instrument around yeah and they would just pick it up and play it because there was no tv you know and sing of course Mm -hmm. well when i lived in covent garden um i used to go to the coach and horses in soho for sing at the piano on a sunday night really did you yeah so there you go you see fantastic well that that is brilliant barbara thank you very much for sharing the life of thomas on yes well i hope it's given a bit more of a feel for maybe something about how it might have felt to live in covent garden from certainly a musician's point of view but also what it was like as a place that's all we've got time for now if you want to continue the music tradition then have a listen to episodes 17 the proms and the royal albert hall and also episodes 63 and 57 about handel's time in london and of course episode 82 is where we talk about ballet in covent garden And in the show notes, along with the transcript, I've also added links to Barbara's classical composers in the West End Walk, a blog that she's also written about Ivan Novello, and also some photos as well, so you can have a little look there.
That's all for now. See you next time.